You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Courtney Sines, and along with my husband, Zach Sines, we are GC leaders in the West Dallas area. I am going to be reading from Genesis 37, 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, please follow along with me. If you don't, there's one uh, under the seat in front of you. And the word of the Lord says this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Courtney. Church family, good to see you this week. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Grateful to be with you. We are in the book of Genesis, continuing. We are, we are 46 weeks into the book of Genesis. Some of you have met, you have married, you have raised your grandkids <laughs> since we started this Book. Now, the good news, a lot of variety coming next year. Next year, all in one year, we're going to cover 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. We're going to study the entire book of Daniel. And at Christmas next year, we're going to start the book of Matthew. All next year coming. But for our sake, for this week, we are beginning the final stretch here. We are beginning our descent. Get your tray tables up, get your seats raised back. Final 10 weeks we are entering into right now in the book of Genesis. Uh, We have been tracing in this latter part of the book very specific promises that God has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he would bless them, that he would make them a great nation, and ultimately through them, he would bring forth one in whom all the earth would be blessed, a Messiah. And we've been tracing this promise. And as we've looked at different families, remember Genesis is not divided by chapters. Those were inserted much, much later. Genesis is divided by toledotes, the Hebrew word for generations. And we've been tracing these like family genealogical trees. Last week, we saw the toledote of Esau, one of the sons of 
Isaac and and we saw this great blessing that God has given him. We saw he's got this large clan. He has these large territories. And if you just picked up there, you might think this is the guy that God has chosen to bring this blessing through. Because when you juxtapose that against his brother, Jacob, it seems very different. Look at verse one of chapter 37. Jacob, however, he lived in the land of his father's sojournings land of Canaan. He's a wanderer. We don't see him with this big empire yet. We don't see him with a big mighty nation. Doesn't look like he's very blessed at this moment. But what we are going to see over the next 14 chapters through the next 10 weeks is we're going to see the power of God to fulfill his promises, even when it seems like it is impossible that this is going to happen. And he is going to bring forth a mighty nation and a Messiah. Today, we're going we're to begin the final Toledot of Genesis. You see that there in verse two, the generations of Jacob, which is really about Jacob's 12 sons. And even about the 12 sons, what these last 10, uh, 14 chapters are about is they are zeroing in on really just two of those sons. Joseph, in whom God is going to bring the earthly blessing by using him to bring about rescue to his family and the blessing here on earth. But then you're gonna see also the line of Judah, whom God is gonna bring forth the eternal blessing. One in which he doesn't just bless the family of Israel, but all of God's family, including us who are in this room. So we're gonna see these two stories play out here. But we'll begin today with Joseph. And I wanna quickly just work our way through this text. I'm going to highlight a couple of things, really famous story here, highlight a couple of things. And then I want to camp at the end on the one major theme. I think the original reader and us included are intended to see in this chapter. But you see this, pick up in verse two. These are the generations of Jacob. We start with Joseph. Joseph being 17 years old was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that is Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So right out of the gate, here's what we see. Joseph, 17 years old, junior, senior in high school, right here. Bring yourself back to that time. Junior, senior in high school, right here. And he is the product of parental favoritism. It's a sad, tragic story. You go, why? Why is he, why is he demonstrating favoritism here? Well, why is Joseph the favorite? He's the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Now that right there is a tip off that already something's bad. There should be no favorite wife among the wives. There should be one wife and she should be the favorite at all times. But nonetheless, Joseph is the favorite because he's the oldest son of of the wife whom Jacob loved the most. And now it's the child he loves the most. And this is sad because this shouldn't be taking place because Jacob of all people knew firsthand the consequences of parental favoritism. 
because he grew up in a family where his dad favored his brother and his mom favored him. And now here he is just repeating it and now multi-generation cycle that's going on here. And you can see this favoritism play on a couple of ways. Number one, we see in that text, Joseph delivers a bad report about his brothers. That bad report in Hebrew, that word, that phrase for bad report is used elsewhere and translated gossip or slander. So we're intended to see here, this is probably, Joseph's probably a little bit of a tattletale right here. Either, he's either incredibly naive and tone deaf as a 17 year old about how he's communicating some things that have been revealed to him or he's doing what daddy's boys do, ratting out not just any brothers, but notice in verse two, the brothers who are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the least unfavored wives of Jacob. And secondly, what we see is dad here makes him something very special, a multicolored coat. So cue Andrew Lloyd Webber, Start singing the songs, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. Some of you, your flavor is Joseph, king of dreams. And you wanna sing some songs there. But let me just tell you, before you put on your rainbow jackets, this actually may not be what's being translated here. This actually in Hebrew could be translated that his father made him a coat or a robe with long sleeves. But that doesn't make for good Broadway shows. You don't really start singing a lot of songs about the boy with the long sleeved robe. Um, it can go either way and we're not really sure. What we do know here is that either way, this coat or this robe was a symbol of authority and of elevation. Jacob was letting the whole family know that Joseph was the one whom he is choosing for the birthright and the inheritance to go to. Not Reuben, the oldest of all 12, not Simeon or Levi, not even Judah is gonna be the birthright and the, the earthly blessing of firstborn status. No, this is going to be Joseph here and his father um, gives him this and his brothers hate him for it. He's gonna be the one who's gonna receive the inheritance. And this will be true, by the way. Joseph is gonna receive not just a single, but a double portion of the father's inheritance. Have you ever noticed in the 12 tribes of Israel, if you look at them on a map, there's never a tribe of Joseph. It's because Joseph was given a double, double privilege that would go to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's where this double portion's going. But in verses five through 11, this choice of Joseph here is gonna be not just authenticated by Jacob, his earthly father, it's actually going to be certified by his heavenly father as well through two dreams. See the first dream in verse five. Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hate him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now you need to know this first dream, it's not just symbolic, it's prophetic. All, all these boys, they're shepherds, they're not farmers. Yet in this dream, they're farmers. 
They're gathering sheaves for a grain harvest. This is prophetic of what's coming in chapter 42 when Joseph is gonna be elevated to be the prince of all of Egypt, the second most powerful in all of Egypt at the exact same time that a famine hits the land and his brothers have to come down to Egypt in need of grain from him. And here is this picture in this dream of them bowing down to Joseph and so they hate him for it. But then there's a second dream in verses nine and following. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, even 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. The 11 stars here, clearly they interpret it right, represent his 11 brothers. The sun and the moon represent Jacob and his mom, Rachel, even though at this point she is passed. And again, Joseph in some sort of elevated position is in this dream again with the family now bowing down to him. And so you have this tension going on with these two dreams. Um, this tension of something that's true, but maybe it's not delivered in the best manner here. Joseph, either naive or prideful here, was probably a little too quick to start posting his dream on Instagram and TikTok here to flaunt it a little bit. But the fact is, Joseph is going to be chosen, not only by his earthly father, but as certified by not one, but two dreams by God himself, that God has a purpose for Joseph in his plan, and it will include elevating him at a time when his family is going to need him the most. But no matter how true this is, it is not delivered in a way that is received, and therefore his brothers despise and reject him for this. So in verses 12 through 28, his brothers are now going to conspire, and they're going to put this favored son to death because of these dreams. And you see this starting in verse 12. So his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing their flock at Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. And so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? And Joseph said, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, hey, they've gone away for I've heard them say, let us go to Dothan. And, and so Joseph went after his brothers and found them there at Dothan. It's interesting to note, Joseph's brothers here are out shepherding their flock some 60 miles away from their home, which was not unusual, but they're in Shechem of all places. The very place in chapter 34 when everything went sideways, when all these brothers really were committing violence and, and, um, and everything went, went awry. And so Joseph, he's not with them though. Notice where Joseph's at? He's at home. So either as a 17 year old, he's too young, which we know is unlikely because others go out. It's possible this is one more evidence of favoritism here. He gets to stay back while they're out. And so his father sends him on a mission to go care for them. And as he's coming around the corner, they spot him and watch what happens. Verse 18 and following. 
they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. That's Reuben's plan. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and they threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. Such an awful scene here. At first, they just want to kill him. They want to straight up murder him and then just did discard his dead body into a pit and then say he was eaten by animals. It's like a scene from Dateline right here. But then Reuben, Reuben, the oldest brother of all 12, he finds out about this plan and he intervenes. Reuben of all people, the guy who in chapter 34 slept with his own father's concubine as a power grab in the family, all of a sudden, this guy's got a conscience. And he convinces them to not murder him. Just put him in the pit alive, let him die of exposure, of, of animals, whatever may happen, but let's not actually commit the murder ourselves. And he did so, we're told, for the purpose that after a while they would all leave and then Reuben could come back and rescue him. So maybe some evidence of growth and maturity is taking place in Reuben here, at least of a conscience. But, so they agree as brothers and notice what they did. They strip him of his clothes. They throw him into a pit. Literally, it's a cistern. It's an underground water storage um, that they would have like a well that was dug under there. Every time I lead trips to Israel, we always go into one of these. Usually at Samson's home, there's a giant underground cistern. And you can see it's like a jug underground is how it's carved out with just a hole at the top. And they could block off an entrance. And the only way is through there. You're stuck. It's dark, it's cold, and there's no escape. And so they leave him for death while they all go up on top and cater in some barbecue and have a feast over this. It's a horrific scene. Now, while they're there, one of the brothers comes up with what he feels is an even better plan. Not one that just leaves him for death, but one they might be able to profit off of. You see this, the end of verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah, Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And then the Midianite traders, they were passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So as they're eating, they notice this caravan 
of traders on their way to Egypt. They're Ishmaelites. Remember who Ishmael is? Ishmael is the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. So early on, the Ishmaelites have established a connection with Egypt in trade. And so Judah, as they're sitting there eating, Judah, who first wanted blood, now he wants money. And he makes a deal to sell Joseph out of this pit for the going rate of a slave in that day, which was 20 shekels of silver. It's a sad commentary here, by the way. A descendant of Isaac being sold to the descendants of Isaac's brother, Ishmael, so that he can be taken down as a slave in Egypt, all because Joseph's brothers were jealous that he was chosen and they weren't. In verse 29, Reuben, apparently who was unaware of this deal, returns later that day or that evening, whenever, to rescue Joseph only to find that he's not there anymore. In verse 30, he fears the consequences of his involvement and he convinces his brothers, let's cover the whole thing up. And you see that in verses 31 to 36, they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether this is your son's robe or not. In other words, they're not even gonna verbally lie to their dad. They're just gonna put forth what they believe is the evidence and let dad draw his own conclusion. And sure enough, in verse 33, he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol, that is the grave, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And so it's a heartbreaking and horrific, horrific story here. Incredible grief of a father at the end of this story who believes he has lost his son. There may be no greater sting in all the instances that I've counseled in all my ministry than a parent who has lost a child. And here he is grieving. And this is a grief, by the way, that he's gonna have to carry and live with for the next 17 years before he will find out the truth. All while the very culprits of this act are continuing their fraud by now acting as comforters. It's a twisted and horrific tale. Also real irony at the end, by the way, Jacob, remember Jacob had deceived his father, Isaac, with a garment of goatskins, and now he is deceived himself by his own sons with a garment that is dipped in goat's blood. The family trait of deception has now gone multi-generational. And y'all, we could, we could talk for days about the implications of a jacked up family like this one 
of favoritism and deceit and driven by the lust of their flesh and how that plays out in a family. We could spend so much time in application there, but we would be bearing the lead if we did. And I want to camp for the rest of our time here just on what the lead is. What is it the original readers were meant to see? What is it you and I are meant to see in this story of, J- of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers? And I think the lead story that we're meant to see here is one of sin, suffering, and the providence of God. The providence of God. At first glance, this story is tragic. It seems as if God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob are in jeopardy. It seems like his promise to Joseph, even through these dreams, is a lie. And that if indeed God is sovereign and good, then God must have somehow just forgotten about Joseph. And evil has now won and there is no justice and all things have been ruined. That's what it feels like in this text. But that, let me tell you, that is only true if chapter 37 is the end. But look ahead. Are there not more chapters? Keep scrolling, keep reading. There are more chapters coming. Chapter 37 is not the end. We know, we know that there is more that is coming. For those who know the end of the story, spoiler alert, by the way, I'm gonna go ahead and just ruin the rest of Genesis for you right now. There is a chapter 50 that is coming where we will see by the end of chapter 50 that Joseph's slavery into Egypt ends up with him becoming the second most elevated position of power in all of Egypt at that time. Just about the time that a major famine hits the land in that whole region and drives Joseph's family to have to come to Egypt in order to beg for grain only to receive it from the very son that they thought was dead. And in that instance, God will use Joseph to mercifully rescue and forgive the very brothers who committed this act of evil. And in doing so, God will supernaturally, through this evil, actually use it to preserve his promise of blessing and the promise of a Messiah. God is going to do that. Joseph is gonna say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verse five, listen to these words. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. He's gonna say again in chapter 50, verse 20, as for you brothers, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Don't miss that. You wanted to hand me over to death, but God allowed this act of evil so that many could live. That's gonna show up here in just a minute. We see two realms going on at play in this story in Genesis Two realms that simultaneously are happening at the same time. One is seen, one is unseen. One is earthly, one is divine. One is evil and one is good. 
We have a term for this, a theological term for this. It's called providence. Now, sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is a theological, theological doctrine that God is supreme in his power and authority. He is in charge of all things at all times. There is nothing outside of his control. This is God's sovereignty. Providence is that understanding of sovereignty that the sovereign plan of God that is specifically working itself out on behalf of God's chosen people in order to accomplish his perfect will in an imperfect world in such a way that will lead to the greatest amount of glory for his name and the ultimate good for his people. That is what providence is about. And it does so even, even through the hard and the evil acts of sin and results of suffering that come. The Latin term for providence literally translates pro video. It means to see beforehand. And it's God's ability to see your life from a distance. But providence is not just passive foresight. It doesn't come with the idea that God's just able to look through time and go, oh, I know what's gonna happen. It is the idea that God is actually, as he sees the decreed end that he has decreed, he is actually sovereignly, sovereignly connecting that end with the means that he has ordained along the way in order to bring about that end in such a way that leads to his glory and our good. Even if it means, and even if it includes, which it does, the sinful acts that are committed at the hands of wicked people. Now there's, there's tension that's here in this doctrine. I want, I want you to understand four very clear biblical truths that I'm gonna put on the screen for you, backed up by scripture that communicate this to us. Number one, understand this, the scriptures teach God has created all things, visible and invisible, which are continually upheld, held together by him. God is sovereign over all things. He's made all things. He holds all things in place at all times. Everything that you can see, even the things you can't see. God is holding them up by a sovereign hand. Second thing that you need to note, the scriptures teach, nothing happens on this earth, nothing apart from God's will. And he uses all things, even sin, suffering, and evil in order to fulfill his purposes that result in his glory and our good. He's sovereign over all things and he uses all things, good and evil, he uses them. However, number three, God is not the source of evil, nor does he do evil, nor is he to be blamed for evil. The scriptures clearly tell us that. He is righteous in all his ways. And then fourth, as humans, we make willing choices. We are not robots. We make willing choices 
that have real effects and will be held accountable for those choices that we make. These are four truths that I think we need to see in understanding the providence of God and how the providence of God works. But there's a tension there, is there not? Bad things happen in this earth, in our lives. There are bad things happening right now in our lives. Some of you are walking through some horrific circumstances right now. That is true. And we see in scripture that God is not only sovereign over those bad things, and he not just permits those bad things, he actually uses those bad things. But, but we see it is without him being the source or the cause of those evil actions. Those are committed at the hands of sinful men and women, at the hands of a real enemy in Satan himself, not God. And yet providentially, you have human choice with real effects, real consequences, real responsibility. And yet providentially, those choices are used by the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his greater purposes in the world for us. Sometimes there are two aspects of God that you and I have a real hard time reconciling when it comes to evil. The sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. We like those two, sovereignty of God and goodness of God. Praise God for those. But when evil is brought into the picture, we don't know how to reconcile those. And we, we usually conclude, well, if God is sovereign, but yet evil is happening, then God must not be good. Or we say, if God is good, and yet evil is happening, then maybe God isn't as sovereign and as powerful as we think he is. But the scriptures give us a third way that allows for the existence of evil as executed by a fallen sinful choices of human beings and yet a God who sovereignly directs them in a way that fulfills his greater plans of redemption and still one day assures us he will hold evil accountable. Certainly there is an enigma there in our finite minds that we just can't reconcile how that all works, but understand biblically that is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction in the infinite mind and plan of God. Now, how do we know this to be true? How can I convince you as a Christian that you actually do believe in providence, that you believe God does and can use evil to bring about good? The greatest example in all of the human existence, in all the scriptures of the providence of God using, purposely using evil to bring about good is the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest example of God purposely delivering his own son unto death at the hands of wicked men so that he could bring about more lives that are gonna be saved in you and I in this room. Acts chapter two, Peter preaching says these words, 2.23, this Jesus being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's one plane. Yet you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You go, so which is it? Did God put Jesus on the cross or did men put Jesus on the cross? Answer, both. Both happened 
in that moment. One primary agent who was sovereignly decreeing and ordaining the death of his own son in order to bring about our redemption, but a secondary means who actually carried it out, who acted through their own volitional will to put Jesus Christ on the cross and commit evil in that moment. The cross of Christ is the greatest example of God's providence in taking what men meant for evil and using it for his glory and our good. This is not God just reacting to evil, like in a chess match. Somebody does this, oh, I'll make this move. This is God sovereignly using it, even when we can't comprehend it, yet he's not the source of it. This is the providence of God. And in fact, I want you to consider for just a moment Everything we just read in Genesis 37, did you not notice some major parallels to a greater story that is happening in scripture and in our lives? Consider this, what we learned in chapter 37, a shepherd boy, beloved firstborn son, who is sent by his father to a distant place to go care for his brothers. And rather than being received joyfully by those brothers, he is despised and he is rejected by them. He is stripped bare of all his clothes. He is handed over to their enemies. He is betrayed by one of his own people for shekels of silver to be handed over for the own execution of his death. And yet while he appeared to be cast off and consequentially dead, oh, he was actually fully alive. And in fact, by the time they see him next, they understand he has been resurrected to rule and reign over all affairs. And when given the chance to punish those rightfully whom he had rejected instead by his own mercy, he forgives them, rescues them, brings them back into his family, reconciled and restored. Does that sound remotely familiar to you? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the exact same thing that happened to our good shepherd who came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Instead, we handed him over for his death. We thought evil had won out, but in the whole scheme of things, God was actually using that foreordained before we were even born to understand that this is how sinners are gonna be saved by the death of Jesus Christ who had shed his own blood for us that we might be saved and reconciled, forgiven and restored. How do we know that is true? Look around. We are the good that brought God glory through Jesus Christ's work. We're the fruit of God's providence on the cross. So what does this mean for us? Let me just close with a few practical things that I think we can take away. When you rightly understand the providence of God that is at work in human history and through the church right now in your life, then number one, you can understand your suffering has purpose and hope. It is not meaningless. The truth of God's providence, it's gonna rule out atheism, that there is no God. No, there is a sovereign God. The truth of God's providence is gonna rule out deism, that there was some creator God who created and then just abandoned and is not at work anymore. It's gonna rule out pantheism, that God is not distinct from creation and somehow sovereign over it. It's gonna rule out luck or chance. Be real careful, Christian, 
about using the phrases good luck or fingers crossed or you know what? Let's see how chance plays out here. Luck and chance is indicative of randomness that leads to fortune. There is no randomness that is at play in this world if you understand the providence of creator and sovereign God. It also rules out fate. So there is some determined plan that is brought about by an impersonal force. This is a personal God who has not only created all of human history, he is active within it, working out his ultimate plan. It means the suffering that you and I go through is not an oops on the part of God. It means two things are happening at once. Yes, there's real pain that is either caused by real sins that you and I have committed that brings collateral damage on our own lives, the sins of others that have been committed that have victimized us, or the pain that comes from the real effects of living under sin's curse where bodies don't work like they should and the earth doesn't work like it should. All propelled by a real enemy, Satan himself, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That is true. And yet at the same time, it is also true, there's a real God who is sovereign over those sins, sovereign over those sufferings, sovereign over that enemy of Satan himself, using it all to accomplish a greater purpose that you and I can't even see. And he will not let your suffering have the final say. Whatever you're walking through right now is your chapter 37, but it is not the end. There is a chapter 50 that is coming. And so you can know that your pain, it's not going to be wasted. In fact, even now, Paul told the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter four, this momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says this light and moment, he's like scales. This It feels like the pain is heavier than what God's ultimately doing. But no, no, in all reality, if you could see chapter 50, this pain you have here is actually light on the scales compared to the weight that is coming for you in glory. And therefore, we can confidently consider with Paul, as he said in Romans chapter eight, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to that glory that is one day gonna be revealed to us. Chapter 50 is coming. Providence also means that where you're at right now, don't miss this church family, where you're at right now is no accident. We see in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says this, Acts 17, he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Where you and I are living right now is not an accident, though you think it may be. Why did God bring me to Dallas? So hot. God has a sovereign plan. Why? Why are you here? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. You're living in Dallas, you're being single, the job that you have, wherever you find yourself right now, you need to hear this. It is not a cosmic accident. God has not forgotten about you. He's not dropped the ball on you. He has you where you are for a reason. 
that his providence is working out right now. That is ultimately one day, we don't know, we can't see, we're finite, but one day it is going to lead for his glory and your good. And so that gives you hope. That gives you hope that what God has started, he will be faithful to bring to completion. How do I know this? Because I can look to the cross and know that when God promises, he provides. He will do this. Chapter 37 is not the end. The cross is proof to us that God has put a down payment that he promises to finish out on. Listen to this, Romans chapter eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely with him give us all things? Did you hear what Paul just said right there? You think God is gonna let his son die to bring you to salvation and yet he's totally gonna drop the ball on you with the rest of your sufferings that you're gonna walk through? No. God says, if you're doubting how his providential story is gonna play out for you in the end, just look to the cross. If he was willing to give his own son on the cross, he's not gonna renege on you. He's gonna freely give you all things. It's coming in chapter 50, even if you can't see it now. So therefore, secondly, so our, we know our hope has, per, our, our suffering has purpose and hope, but secondly, we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear because our confidence is in God's providential plan. We need not fear suffering or evil or harm even when it comes our way as awful as it is in the moment because we know that our God is in control. Nothing comes our way that does not pass through his hands. Evil will be held accountable and met with divine justice and he will ultimately work all this out for his glory and our good. We are only at chapter 37, y'all. We are not at chapter 50. We are only 20 minutes in to a two hour movie in which God is the author, director, and producer. And he gets to say how this thing ends. So don't let that little 20 minute clip that you just watched be the final story of what God is going to do. When all you can see is the dark pit of a cistern with no way out. When all you can see are the bars and the shackles of an imprisoned caravan on its way to Egypt for you. You have to know this story is not done. There is more being written than what you can see. Do not be afraid. Your God has got you. And so with that, thirdly, we can trust, we can pray, and we can obey. Don't focus on what you don't know. Focus on the one who does know it. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while still doing good. Don't yield yourself to evil. Evil may come after you. Don't yield yourself to it. Yield yourself to God in providential trust one of the sovereign means that God has ordained in order to bring about his decreed ends is prayer. Prayer is not meaningless. Prayer is not wasted. Prayer is you humbly declaring that you need God. And God's listening to your prayers is him sovereignly saying, I've got this. You can trust me. And then fourthly and finally, you can rest with a posture of gratitude. 
I want you to spend some time this week looking at the circumstances of your life right now. Rather than focusing on all that has gone wrong, rather than focusing on all the pain that you are encountering right now, see if you can step back and discern God's goodness in the midst of it. See if you can recognize God's faithfulness and kindness to you. Go open the scriptures and be reminded of the chapter 50s that God has already promised us that will come about one day. And see if you can then have a posture of gratitude towards your sovereign, good father who loves you, who promises he's got you. Do not quit. Look to the cross and move forward in trust for he will carry out his plans. Rest assured. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how my soul needs to be reminded of this. How my soul needs to be reminded that I'm not the one in control. You are, oh God. And even though I and everyone in this room see through a veil right now, we, we can't really see what's going on. As one man said, there are a thousand things going on at any given time and I'm aware of maybe two or three of them. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us when, when all the world seems like it's falling apart to know that you are holding it together, that you will deliver on your promises and that like Joseph, as we're gonna see in the days ahead, we would simply trust and obey as you work this out for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.